You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. First Corinthians 15, 20 through 35. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 20, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those for Christ is coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies, all his enemies, under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those baptized for the dead? What will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Why also? Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, but I, and I speak this to your shame. So as we're going we're gonna to kind of backtrack a little, um, I told you I would tell you where hell is. Anybody know where northeastern Illinois is? There's a town there, and there's the, I understand the south side of it is a really bad part of town. I think that's the actual address, longitude and latitude. No, um, and this is not a perfect little um, depiction, but it's, it's good enough for our purposes. Um, we talked about the fact that what Paul is doing here is he's explaining to the Corinthians all the reasons why they're wrong that there, there is no resurrection from the dead. So whenever we're, we're in this section of 1 Corinthians, all the way through the end of chapter, excuse me, all the way through, um, well, actually pretty much through the end of the chapter, but specifically for our purposes to thir verse 34, if we make it that far today, he is pointing out to them that not only is there a resurrection, but that it has consequences in our lives daily. Um, and... <clears throat> So as we look at where hell is and, and where the dead go after, after they pass, just remember that it's all in the context of explaining to the Corinthians that there really is a resurrection of the body after death. Your bodies will be reunited with your spirit at some point, but you will go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's a reward waiting. And this idea of dualism that the Greeks had, that the spirit survives but the body does not, was false. Paul was dealing with that, especially in this church, this pagan Greek church that had trouble understanding and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Disavowing 
their old theology, their old Greek theology. So as we talked, we're going to go back to verse 23, which we finished up with, I think, a week ago, where Paul says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So we're going to look at those verses again um, in light of where hell is, what happens after death. And then if there's any questions, we can talk about that. So, and this is just a short little explanation for the purposes of this, of understanding where the body goes at death prior to Christ's resurrection and after, we will take a quick look, I said, at the doctrine of hell. Prior to the resurrection of Christ, the righteous dead went to Sheol slash Hades slash heaven. Abraham's bosom, how many of you thought Abraham's bosom was a place? Yeah, I did too for a long time. It's actually a designation of a position of honor. It's a, it's a colloquialism, if you will, that, they, that the Hebrews used, that the, the Jews used. It's like saying, in the lap of luxury. Anybody know a guy named Luxury? Except for in Monopoly when you pay his tax, the luxury tax. Yeah, <laughs> lives in the Laplands. This is near Newfoundland, yeah. Not near Chicago. It's a colloquialism. Abraham's bosom refers to a place of honor, not a location or a place. Lazarus was given that place of honor in the true story Jesus told of his and the rich man's death. So this would have been in the presence of God. I want you to remember two names as we're wondering about where the Old Testament believers went. Two names just to start with. Elijah and Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. 2 Kings 2.11, as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to where? To heaven. He went to heaven. Psalm 16.11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist fully expected at death to go into the presence of God. Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy will, or loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, the psalmist expected at death to be in the presence of God. So the unrighteous dead went to the lower compartment or Tartarus, where they also resided in, an, in a conscious state. They could see, they could hear. They were aware, or are, and today are aware of what's going on around them. All the dead. The righteous in heaven and the unrighteous dead in Hades shall wait until the final judgment. After the final judgment, all the dead are reunited with their, their physical bodies. This is what the Corinthians were resisting. <laughs> with the unrighteous being finally cast into hell, Hades no longer exists as it is cast into hell as well, and the righteous remain in heaven with God. There is no annihilation. There is no simple spiritual punishment in hell. The punishment is physical, eternal, and horrible. And we are working to make sure as few go there as possible, are we not? By God's grace, there is no escape from hell. There is no second chance. There is no place in Kansas where you can wait and have someone pray you out of it. Purgatory. The terms used in the Old Testament are Sheol, the grave, the pit, and in different ways they refer to death 
and conscious location in a place different from the believing. From the living, excuse me, from the living. In the New Testament, the terms are a bit different but have the same basic concept. The grave, Hades, and such. All of the terms that are used connote a sense of confinement with a negative connotation for Tartarus or hell, the lower hell, and a positive connotation for paradise or heaven, where Jesus said the thief on the cross would be with him that day. Finally, Jesus led captivity captive. He destroyed the control over men that the devil had. This phrase bespeaks victory. The one who made us captive became captive himself. Death, Satan, and sin are all captured and destroyed by Christ. This phrase loosely lifted from Psalm 16, excuse me, Psalm 68, 18, pictures a conquering king's triumphant reign. All of these things Paul would have been would have taught the Corinthians. They would have also been taught to the Corinthians by other evangelists who had come through, whether it was the Apostle Peter or other apostles or other um, gifted evangelists of the day. The Corinthians chose to ignore this and teach that there was no resurrection from the dead. No physical resurrection from the dead. This is why Paul goes into this detail. This is a dangerous, dangerous doctrine. And, and there are many philosophies today. I don't even, I hesitate to call them anything but false philosophies. Um, Christian science teaches it, teaches it. Um, others teach it as well that <laughs> only the physical, excuse me, only the spiritual exists. The physical does not. This is not true. The physical will continue and it will continue on after after our resurrection and reunite, being reunited with our physical bodies forever, forever. And thus we have the birth of Christian missions, which is the responsibility we have to preach the gospel in its fullness to every creature that we can. That we can. So when Jesus conquered death, he conquered all of it, not just part of it. He conquered all of it, and the Corinthians were only getting part of it. Foolish, foolish theology. Foolish, foolish ideas. Um, there's, and, and when you look at it, as the Holy Spirit enters your life, you begin to do things properly and do good things because of your salvation for the glory of God. But the fact is, when you, when you turn, turn the leaf over and go to be with the Lord, there will be rewards waiting for you. Isn't that I mean, if you know that you're going to get a raise if you work harder, doesn't that drive you to work a little harder? And that's okay. That's okay. God set it up that way. Profit moves. Profit will cause us to work harder. The hungry man works harder if he knows that at the end of the day, one of his wages will be dinner. <laughs> so, so God has set it up in his, in his uh, glory and in his wisdom so that men will have something that drive them to do what is right with the Holy Spirit inside causing that, the Holy Spirit driving and energizing and causing men to do what is right. Any questions about where hell is just outside of Chicago? And there's actually a song about it that Jim Croce wrote. Ask me afterwards. <laughs> what was that? Yeah, that makes it true. If it's, if it's in an American ballad, it's gotta be true. You know, it's funny, we, we actually, sometimes we think that way. It's in the scripture, therefore it's true. Let me find my place. That was, uh, kind of for free. 
So we finished up with verse 29. Let's, let's go from verse 23 here, or 24 where we're at, to verse 29. For he must reign, Christ must reign, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things that are, are put into subjection, he is accepted. We talked about that. Who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. And we talked about the fact that that doesn't mean Christ is inferior. It's just like the son of a king is not inferior. He has a position that is lower. And that is how it was as the Lord came to the earth to redeem mankind. Otherwise, will those do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead are not raised at all, why are they then baptized for them? We discussed the the multitude of translations or, excuse me, interpretations that have arisen over the last 20 centuries about that. Why are we also in danger every hour? And this is, I believe, where we, we left off. We finished up with verse 29, and then Paul continues, I don't want to call it a tirade, his didactic, his teaching on why there is a resurrection from the dead, and it is terribly important. Um, and he'll continue to give, especially when we get through about verse, verse 35, I think, 34, he'll continue to give reason after reason after reason for the Corinthians, because apparently they needed him. So, first, he says, why are we also in danger every hour? Here in a nutshell is the statement that encapsulates the observation that the apostles would have no, they would have had no incentive to live the lives they did, endure the trepidations they endured, and suffer a martyr's death for a life, for a lie, excuse me. If there were no resurrection, why would they put themselves in danger? What was in it for them. The infamy attached to this fire made it possible for, Christian, Christian, for this, um, this um, actions that would happen. I guess I kind of got off to my, I got off a little bit there, but abolish. Okay, for those of you that are listening online. Oh yeah, I see what's going on. I was back at the, I've got to get myself caught up here. Just a second. We're going to find out why it was really dangerous to be a Christian in the first century. Why are we in danger every hour? Why would they live and endure a martyr's death? Why, if there were no resurrection, would they put themselves in such danger? In AD 64, Nero apparently burned a portion of Rome. Now, there's all kinds of speculation as to why he did it. He was a really strange guy, really sick man. But they thought the, the, the main reason that was certain or uh, supposed that he did the fire, caused the fire, was to further his building plans for new streets and buildings to be built in his honor. I've got to have buildings that have my name on them, so we're going to burn all these down. Oh, we might kill a few people in the process, but oh well, at least I'll be famous. That's how Nero was. He immediately deflected the blame to the Jews who had a history of burning the property of those who subjugated them. But since the Jews had many people who were friends in Nero's court at the time, this didn't stick. So then Nero deflected the blame to the Christians. At this time, the beginning of the tortures started. Um, many Christians were tortured and sent to their deaths. It's possible that during this period of torture was the time when Peter was killed. So... The infamy attached to this fire made it possible, impossible for Christianity to ever assume statutory approval as a legal religion. Uh, religio, religio lictus, it was in Latin. Um, there were hundreds of religions that had legal status in Rome at the time, and Christianity did not. 
There were many gods and goddesses and different kinds of religions allowed in religion, in religion tolerant Rome during the time, but not Christianity. Tacitus, writing in 115 AD, said, Christus, from whom the name Christians had its origin, was executed by one of our procurators, procurators, Pontius Pilate. And then he described the Christians as guilty of hateful abominations and thus deserving death. Now, whoever frames the debate in any given society controls the outcome. So if you want to get, if you want to poll, you take a poll of people and you ask them questions and you want them to answer those questions in a manner that will that will move your agenda along, then you have to very carefully frame the question and the definitions of the people or the things involved in the question. So, we gotta be very careful of that today. Let's face it, there, I believe there's gonna come a time when Christianity is gonna be defined as a mental illness. Alexander Solzhenitsyn can tell you all about that in his book, The Gulag Archipelago. Uh, in order to get rid of the, the main dissidents in Soviet Russia at the time, in the 40s, they would, they would designate people as mentally incompetent and then send them to the gulag in Siberia. Their definition of mental, part of one, one of the portions of their definition of mental um, competence was an understanding and a belief in evolution, uh, understanding that religion was false, those kinds of things. So if you didn't believe in evolution, if you believe that there was a God and you believe that, that he had uh, effect and he was working in the world today, they deemed that a mental illness. So what happened in first century Christianity? We're going to look at uh, the ten, so 10 of the main charges that were used to bring people into court and either kill them or banish them or take their property. Cannibalism. So this was in reference to the Lord's Supper, although apparently the accusations didn't last long as Christians were able to show that they were actually consuming bread and wine and not somebody's body. But it was an attempt. They, were, they would be accused of cannibalism. When you talk about, Jesus said himself said it, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Carol? Yes. And you, that's coming, folks. It's coming. It's on the horizon. It's on the horizon. And this, this, so this stuff that's happening today, where they are taken into court and their beliefs, Christians' beliefs are challenged and they're seen as illegal and they're forced to pay fines and, and subsidized horrible lifestyles at the order of a court, that's part of what's coming. Number two, disruption of business. The growth of Christianity disrupted some businesses that made money by marketing silver statues of the false gods. Also, Christians cut into the sales of animals and sacrificial meat to the gods because people stopped buying it. They got saved. They became Christians, and they stopped buying these false gods and buying the meat sacrificed to animals, and it really cut into business. Number three, gross immorality, including incest. Believers called each other brother and sister, and many in those early years assumed that that implied incest. The, the exemplary lives that the Christians of that time lived eventually put these accusations to rest. Number four, anti-family actions. Once a person became a believer, their allegiance to Christ and the body of Christ became paramount and sometimes cut against familial relations when their families remained enthralled to demonism and false gods. Accusations would arise, cases would come to, before court and they would be dealt with. Sometimes even divorce was considered when one marriage partner was a believer and one was a pagan. Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians 7. So biblical Christianity, as Christ said, 
set brothers against sisters, mothers against children, fathers against sons. And why did it do that? Because the truth became a divider. Shouldn't the truth divide truth from, what's that other thing that's not true? Heresy, lies, falseness, falsehoods. It, of course it should. And so they would bring charges of anti-family actions. Poverty. Christianity was ridiculed by pagans because many Christians were poor and therefore their God must have not been that powerful. Otherwise, he would have made them rich. Anybody heard that today? Name it, claim it. I'm not even going to go into it. That's, that's an entire lesson on itself. Christians averred that riches were not the point of this life and amazingly, more often than not, even had enough to give to others, although they seemed and were deemed terribly poor. Number six, atheism. Because Christians would only worship one God, they were given the title of atheists because they would not worship nor honor the pantheon of pagan gods in the Roman world. There are plenty of gods today that Christians are not worshiping, and they're looked at as atheists in that sense. Number seven, introduction of novelties. These were charges that were brought against them. Because Christianity was new, traditional Romans assumed that it was the novelty of this new faith that attracted converts. Christians countered with the fact that they worshiped the God of all creation, and thus their traditions were as ancient as time itself. Number eight, lack of patriotism. Most pagan religions are tied up with the state and even with their state holidays. Their state holidays were religious celebrations, civil celebrations. Christians could not participate in these holidays because it would imply they worshipped the gods of those holidays and thus they were accused of being unpatriotic. Number nine, antisocial behavior. Related to their supposed lack of patriotism and their refusal to participate in immoral festivities, immoral festivities, they were charged as being antisocial. Because a truly dedicated Christian won't take part in what goes on in Hollywood, they're antisocial. And then number 10, and this one I thought was so funny. It's not funny if you were the guy that was being killed because of it. But since Christians would not submit to nor honor Roman gods, whenever a disaster came along, such as a hurricane, an earthquake, or such, Christianity got the blame. You know, if those Christians would just bow the knee, this storm wouldn't have happened. One of the early church fathers, he said in satire, he satirically said, if the Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky doesn't move, or if the earth does, if there is famine, if there is plague, the cry is at once, the Christians to the lions. <laughs> it's, we laugh, but imagine, imagine being blamed for Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, and being sacrificed to the lions. In, uh, during Mardi Gras. <laughs> it's well known that the persecutions increased in the second and third centuries, but during Paul's time, there was still plenty of evil to go around. So these are some of the things that Paul is talking about. Why are we in danger every hour? He had to be let down in a basket out of a city. He had to flee often, especially the Jews who would follow him and, and uh, break up his, his, um, his gatherings and try to get him in trouble with the authorities and, and indeed did get him in trouble with the authorities. So he's telling the Corinthians, you know, the very fact that we came here those years ago and founded this church put us, put a target on our backs. Why would we do that if there's no resurrection from the dead? If what we're doing is a lie? If everything we're doing today and back then has absolutely no eternal significance? Why would we do that? So the Corinthians, they would have been listening, yeah? 
okay? And then he says in verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul further castigates the Corinthians, reminding them that he founded the church and spent himself in service for them. This is related to the previous verse, indicating the foolishness of living such a life if there be no resurrection. It is likely he was boasting about the Corinthian church itself existing because of the work Paul had done by the Holy Spirit, a work that required himself, required him to put himself to death daily, as Christ mentions in Matthew chapter 16, 24 and 25. Jesus said this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, and I'll say brothers and sisters, even though that has no intimation at all of immorality. Today, we're living some of these things that we talked about just a few minutes ago. We're seeing some of these things happen. We should look at it as an ushering in of the end times, if possible. But not at least we should look at it as a vindication of the truth. Because if you are living a life that is glorifying God in a pagan culture, you're going to be vilified. It's going to happen. And so Paul is not, he's not complaining about that. He's simply pointing it out to the Corinthians. Why would we do these things if this wasn't true? If what Christ said in the upper room and what he did on that third day didn't actually happen, why would we be doing this? Any questions or comments? Verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's great advice. I'm, ser I'm serious. That's great advice. If there's no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, because we're all going to die. We're all going to be worm food. It is not known really whether Paul actually physically fought with wild beasts, although this could be a reference to that. Despite the fact that there is an ancient tradition that Paul may have actually fought with wild beasts, it's more likely that this is a metaphor. And Ignatius, in his epistle in, in the second century, said this, From Syria, even to Rome, I fight with beasts, both by land and sea, both by night and day, being bound to ten leopards, I mean a band of soldiers, who even when they receive benefits, show themselves all the worse. The, the uh, band of soldiers that he was arrested with uh, and, and was forced to spend time with were apparently very evil to him, and he called them a band of leopards. Further, it was a common metaphor in used, used by the ancients to depict passionate disputations and even violent disputations with other people who are vicious by nature. You, you've, you've heard, you've done it yourself. That guy's like a dog on a bone. You know, or, or you've, we've all used animal analogies. <laughs> Had Paul been into the arena with wild beasts, a couple of things to note. It would have also heralded his loss of Roman citizenship, which is when you, when you were deemed worthy of being thrown to the lions, they took your citizenship away, which he later claimed in the book of Acts. So we must, we must continually, as we are reading this, come back to the thesis, which is why are you saying there is no resurrection? Why are you saying this? Here's another reason. Why are you saying this? Here's another reason. He's building, an, uh, a build, he's building a, an argument, a good argument. Most importantly, more importantly, this verse is also pointing the Corinthians to the truth of the resurrection. If it were just human motives that drove Paul, what profit would there be in that if he says, if there was no resurrection? What profit would there be? What would he gain from doing these things? 
And he ends it with a quotation from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13, where Isaiah was railing against the backslidden Israelites and their hopelessness, their actions, their evil. In Isaiah 22, 13, Isaiah says, Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. The Israelites were living lives of debauchery, ignoring God, following their own way and doing what is right in their own eyes. And Isaiah was, was preaching, was, word, was speaking against it. Say, they would say to themselves, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, for tomorrow we may die. Frankly, the philosophy which permeates much of the hedonistic world is pretty accurate. If there is no God and no promise of future reward, then the only place a person can get happiness is here and now. The sacrifice that accompanies a life of service is actually foolish if there is no self-interest to be satisfied by that service. This is the concept of carpe diem, or seize the day. Some think it originated with the Egyptians. Um, the, uh, the historian Herodotus wrote of Egyptian dinner parties where the host would actually pass around a carved corpse painted to resemble nature as closely as possible. And as the corpse was passed through the guests, they would be ordered to, or exhorted to, gaze here and drink and be merry. For when you die, such will you be. Seems like a lot of effort to go to to, to uh, convince the others that what you're doing in your own life is okay. Won't we go to great lengths to try to prove to others that the sin we're indulging in in our lives is okay? And that's what was going on. And it was actually, it's actually, false doctrine is sinful. So what the Corinthians were doing when they were teaching that was no resurrection, they weren't just giving a wrong entry in an encyclopedia. It was heresy. It was false. It was wrong. So Paul was forcing the point home to the Corinthians that there is a resurrection and that Christians have much to look forward to. Now, of course, will be a result of salvation. So when done in the power of the Holy Spirit, it will certainly be selfless. But this is the only way it can be so. Denying the resurrection have the effect of destroying the incentive to serve others. Denying the resurrection have the effect of destroying the incentive to serve others. Because of what Christ has done for us and because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are moved to serve others, to care for others, even when they accuse us of atheism and disruption of business and immorality and anti-family actions and lack of patriotism and anti-social behavior. It is the resurrection of Christ. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit that moves Christians to be the change agents. And I don't, that sounds so political. I don't want it to sound so political. To be the movers in earth pointing people to the living Christ. The living Christ. He's still not in the tomb. He rose from the dead, and so shall we. Any questions? Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Interestingly, this verse follows perfectly. If there is no hope of reward in the afterlife, men will live sensually in order to satisfy themselves and a false ideal and to convince others that what they're doing is okay. If the Corinthians were going to keep company with people who taught and lived wrong things, their lives would be corrupted as well. It's the old principle that a little bit of leaven, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. The Greek word translated morals is ethos, 
ethos, from which we get the word ethics. False teaching about the resurrection resulted in spreading bad ethics. False teaching about the resurrection of Christ corrupts, had the effect of corrupting the morals of those who listened to it, who believed it. The gospel changes your life. And what is the foundation of the gospel? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel makes you decide, turn, causes you to turn. The Holy Spirit in your life causes you to turn from one direction and go another. Without that, we're just, we're just animated soldiers in the wrong direction with everybody else. Doing our own thing for our own good. So don't be deceived. Bad, bad, friend, bad company corrupts good morals. So then he says, he goes to verse 34, and he says, Now, become sober-minded. This is where, he, at least as, I, as I've been reading this and studying this, this is almost like a turning point in his argument. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. The false doctrine, the false thoughts, the false ideas, they weren't just mistakes, they were sins. Stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Sober-minded is to return to oneself from drunkenness. Become sober. To return to soberness of mind. To become whole again. To become smart again. <laughs> to become useful, if you will, again. The idea here is that the Corinthians needed to come back from drunkenness to sober-minded thinking. Stop being foolish and recognize <laughs> that some among them no knowledge of God at all. They needed to be ashamed that because they should have, when they should have been teachers spreading the blessed gospel among their neighbors, they were spreading false information, spreading false theology. Observing the character of some of the Corinthians in the church would have never suggested to the Greeks around them that these people were Christians. You've heard the old story. If you were, if you were arrested for being a Christian, and you were brought to the bar, and you were put in the chair, and they began to cross-examine you, would there be enough evidence to convict you of Christianity? These Corinthians, because they were espousing false theology about the resurrection, there was no reason to assume that they were alive, they were, they were born again. And I believe many of them were. They were believing a false doctrine. It's possible to do that. But a Christian, a believer, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when confronted with the truth of the word, you'll wrestle with it maybe, you'll struggle with it, you'll kick at it sometimes, but it will change your mind. It will change your heart if you're born again because the Holy Spirit has a vested interest in making you like, his, like the Son of God. And he will leave no stone in our lives unturned to make us like him. So Paul continues to work on this and he says, now, you know what? This is where the argument changes, and we're going to quit a little early because I need to set this whole thing up uh, And from verse 35 through pretty much the end of the chapter. He answers the question, what does it look like? Okay, okay, so we're now he's, he's answered all the frequently asked questions, the FAQs that the Corinthians have. He's disabused them of the false theology that they're teaching. <laughs> and now... I don't know if in one of the letters that he got, these questions were asked, probably, or if these are some of the other things he would set in order when he came, could be, but he's going to answer the questions. What does it look like? What does a resurrected body look like? 
And have any of you ever wondered about that? I mean, people that are cremated. How's he going to put that back together? Uh, duh, he said, let, it, let there be light, and the universe sprang into existence. But there are folks that struggle with the idea that God can reconstitute someone who was burned up in a fire, blown up in an explosion, that were known to be Christians. That is so simple for the God of the universe. Hold my coffee, he'll say. Nothing could be easier for him. And Paul will deal with that. He'll deal with the Corinthians, their possible objections to what a resurrected body will look like, how it will come to be. And so this is a marvelous section. This is the best book in the Bible. So any questions before we move on or before we close? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for proving it and sanctioning it with the resurrection of your blessed son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that you have decided in your, in your economy that that can be one of the things, if one, not one of the most important things, that drives us to serve you, to honor you, to glorify you, to love you, to obey you. We pray, Lord, that, that our lives might be different than they were before so that indeed if we were brought into a court of law, there would be evidence to convict us of Christianity. And we will know that it will be you who have done that. You started it. You who have begun a good thing in us will complete it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.